If you've listened to any recent episodes of the Vincast, you'll know that we are supported in part by Venice, the iPhone app which recognizes any bottle with just the snap of a photo. Uh, if you haven't already downloaded it, I really recommend jumping on board. Um, make sure you go to getvenice.com forward slash Vincast. Download your version of the app, uh, start stepping away. So um, you can jump on there, follow, uh, there are recommended people like myself uh, who are tasting wines on a very regular basis and making review. Uh, and it's really in- interesting to kind of find out what some of these, particularly wine professionals are thinking of wines that they're trying. And so you can um, find out where you might be able to buy a bottle if you're interested and add them to your wish list. Um, don't forget you can actually log where you enjoyed the wine or where you bought the wine and even who you are with so you can get more and more of your fellow wine lovers to engage on Venice. Um, just remember that Venice is changing the way we enjoy wine. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And I wanted to start out this week's episode with a few shout outs. Uh, some people have uh, recently been commenting um, with some feedback on Twitter on a previous episode. So thank you very much to Jonathan Brook, uh, David Jones, and to Sailor Vino. Always appreciate hearing from you guys. Um, please let me know if you have any um, comments or suggestions or questions um, that you'd like me to answer on the show. Um, you can do that on Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino or the podcast is at The Vincast. Uh, you can comment on the website intrepidwino.com or indeed uh, if you just like to um, leave me a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would be greatly appreciated and you can find the links on the website. Uh, for this week's episode, I've invited um, uh, a very lovely person, uh, Christina Picard, who is based over in Perth, originally hailing from New York State in the United States. And uh, I was first introduced to her through uh, the podcast she was doing with Whitney Adams um, called The Crush, uh, highly recommended. Um, and I met her at Rootstock earlier this year. So um, she dialed in and um, here we go. Christina, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, how is it? How the, how's the weather over in Perth today? Oh, it's Perth. It's, it's always beautiful. It's like 30 <laughs> degrees, beautiful blue skies, sun is shining. Most of the time the weather is like this. It's, it's the, we are blessed with nice weather in the West. And we're not far away from Christmas. How many Christmases have you had down under? None. Well, I was here. I've been here now for almost two years, but I've only had one Christmas period where I was here. But I went back for New to New York for Christmas last year. I couldn't. I couldn't handle a warm Christmas. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's just too bizarre for me. I have to be in the snow at least for Christmas, and then I'm happy to be back in the warmth again. So, are you spending Christmas in Perth this year? No, we're going, going back, back to New York. Oh, okay. We have a six-week-old baby who needs to meet her Yankee relatives. Uh, So, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. Bringing her. I'm completely dreading the 30-hour flight to New York, uh, 30 hours of travel time with her. But it'll all be worth it when she gets there. Are you breaking it up at all? 
No, no, we've Straight just got, it's just basically like two 12 hour flights via the Middle East and, uh, and then another little local flight to upstate New York where my parents are. Yeah. And then shattered for a couple of days. And then as soon as we recover, we head back again. <laughs> now you're from upstate New York. We're about, I think, the Finger Lakes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Finger Lakes is the wine region. Right. Um, I'm from outside Syracuse is the city. Yes. Uh, so dead in the middle of New York State. So a lot of people don't realize that New York is pretty big. It's actually about the same size as England. Um, well, just you might New be York surprised State. to hear this, but I've actually been there. Have you? To yeah. upstate New York or to uh -huh. New York City? Really? No, I've been to upstate New York. Um, back in 2011, I was making my way from Toronto down through, um, I spent a couple of days in the Niagara Peninsula visiting some wineries there and then crossed the border um, and picked up a, a rental car in Syracuse and spent a couple of days uh, touring wineries in the Fig Lakes. Right. Okay. Well, you are one of the few <laughs> who has been there. Uh, look, Syracuse is nothing to write home about, let's be honest, but the Finger Lakes are beautiful. Um, are. Seneca, Seneca Lake particularly has got some exciting wineries. You know, they're just really at the beginning of their journey. I mean, yeah, for I a agree. long time, they Absolutely. were, you know, as you, as you would know, they were, um, they were for a long time, not even growing Vitas Vinifera grapes. No. Um, so they, they are really st just, just starting to come into their own. And, and now that the vines are starting to get some age and they're working out what, what works well there and what doesn't. Um, but there's been like particularly Riesling, Cab Franc, all those cool climate varieties have been really getting exciting over the last few years. Yeah, I, actually, my impression, having not even visited Austria at that point, I thought it actually would work with some of the Austrian varieties like Grüneveltliner and uh, and Blaufrankisch. I just thought, wow, this For is, sure. you know, um, ideal. But you, were, were you, when, when you were growing up, did you have any contact with wine at all? Uh, not more than just my parents knocking back really oaky California Chardonnay, you know, oh. the, which very similar to Aussie Chardonnay in the eighties and nineties. Sure. Uh, so that very rich, very buttery, that's what my mom drank. And my dad drank the, well, he drank some wine in a box, which he still does. I'm ashamed to say. Was, was your mom a fan of Dallas by any chance? <laughs> I think she was actually. <laughs> I think she was, sadly. That's literally all she drank for right. uh, for my entire childhood and teenagehood was was California Chardonnay. And then my dad was drinking, you know, the, the Zins and the Cabs. And I think it's like here in Australia. You you drink what you know and what's what's easily available. And when you're in a winemaking country, it's usually the wines in your own backyard. Well, not quite in our own backyard with California, but that's a lot of what they were drinking. And so when I got, you know, we don't, we can't drink till we're 21 in the States. So, you know, it wasn't exactly like I was, I was drinking much wine until, um, until I was older. It was mostly just hideous, hideous, uh, fruit cocktail punches and things like that. You know, those, those things you drink in the college that in university yeah. that you like, hope you never have to drink again. <laughs> well, we don't really have, have them generally like the, the drink of choices, I guess, beer or yeah. like mixed spirits, like Bacardi yeah, it's true. and, Are and they, stuff like that. We don't really do like wine. We don't have wine coolers. Yeah. yeah, the wine coolers. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You don't really see them here. I wonder, are there? Is there any... Um, any laws against them here? Because I know in the UK there was a lot oh, of no, talk actually. about that, about trying to trying to ban them completely, which wouldn't be. Wouldn't well, there's be the worst thing there's in the, the alcohol pop tax, but then everyone shifted across to cider and really, really simple sugary cider as well. Give right. you the worst hangover. 
Ooh, I don't think I've ever tried sweet cider at all. Recorder League. If you if you can see Recorder League over in Perth, oh, I, I, uh, yeah. I, I don't recommend it if that makes sense. <laughs> I'm picturing what the label looks like. Yep. And, okay. it, and it's also in, uh, I think they're 500 mil, mil bottles. So, oh, God, they're awful stuff. Um, so, so you were around wine just from your parents drinking it, but you didn't necessarily like when, when did you kind of discover wine and kind of think that that was something you were passionate about and you wanted to follow a career in it? Um, it wasn't until, uh, it was sort of my second career. I always say that wine has been sort of plan B. I was uh, an actress for a while. That was always my, my plan from as early as I can remember was that I wanted to be on the stage and I wanted to perform, um, and my brother's in the theater as well. He's a, a playwright and a director. Um, and so we, does he we live were in New York? City? He does. Yep. And we okay. were a very theater orientated family. So that was always my passion. So I went, that's what I went to university for. It's what, um, I got a postgrad degree in, um, in musical theater was, and so I was singing and attempting to dance and, and that was my thing. That was what I was into. But of course, typical, um, actor needed a day job. So I just, and a friend of mine was working at this place called Vinopolis in the UK in London. Uh-huh. And it's this pretty cheesy wine museum thing. It's like a wine tourism thing. It, you you just sort of now they've made it very self serve with all the enomatic machines. But at the time, we all stood behind tables and poured guests wines from all over the world. And there was this little amphitheater, and we would give talks about how to taste wine. And wow. it was it, it was great, and it was very well meaning. It was very educational. But the problem was, I think they struggled to make money with it, and so it got kind of taken over with sponsorship and things. But at the time, it hadn't quite headed that direction. It was still, it was still, you know, cheesy, but, but fairly, fairly cool. And but I guess uh, it's a cool idea considering that it, um, it was in yeah. London. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously, well, I guess in most parts of the UK, you're nowhere near any wine regions. So it's not like you can go out and visit a winery like, like parts of Australia or like if you're in California, if you're, if you're in San Francisco, it's only an hour or so out to the Napa Valley and you can go and actually see where it's made and learn about the wine there. So it's a, it's a pretty cool idea to be doing it in a, in a, in a metropolis, I guess. Yeah. And it was in this awesome space. It was, uh, under the, in London bridge, under the actual bridges tunnel. So it was all these really old high brick, um, brick tunnels. And it was sort of in those, underneath those. So it was really atmospheric, but it it gave me, I mean, it was, it was just a day job that sounded better than waitressing basically. (laughs) Uh, and I did always like wine. I mean, I drank embarrassingly cheap wine, you know, I would get like gallo, you know, sort of two, three quid gallo from the off license in London. So I should rewind and say I was living in, I lived in London for 11 years until I moved here. So um, I had just finished my postgrad degree, was just needing a day job. Um, so this friend said, yeah, come work at Vinopolis. Like, look, the pay is pretty shit, but, um, you know, it's fun. You get to taste all this wine. And they were subsidizing for us to do our WSETs at the time, like heavily subsidizing them. Were they and running the courses themselves? Or they were, yeah. Okay, cool. They were. They were running them themselves. The the head of the, the – the, I can't remember what his title was, but he was the head of the wine. <laughs> wine well, I guess we're, be, we're better to study WSET than where it's based. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, um, yeah, so I was just working there as a day job, but but it, 
and I was for a long time, for at least a year, very fiercely, like I was an actress, you know, I was going to auditions and I was doing the occasional show and they were really flexible with me to sort of leave and come back. And I was, you know, I was not really into the wine thing. Like I liked it, but I just kept saying, no, I'm an actor. I'm not going to do the WSETs. Like this is not, this is not the career I want to have. I want to have a career in the theater. This is not the Christina I imagined. I know. What, what is the Christina you imagine? Should I, is that a dangerous question to ask? No, no. I, I, was, think, I was saying that, that that's what you were saying to yourself. This is not oh, that's not. Oh, I thought you were saying you don't <laughs> no, imagine. No, no, no. No, I very <laughs> much imagine an actor. it. I very much imagine it. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. So it just, it wasn't at all what I had ever planned. And, um, and then eventually I did this show called Honk. <laughs> It was this musical at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I had a director who was about 10 years younger than me. And it was just this absolutely horrible experience. And I remember sitting backstage in the middle of the show, sitting backstage waiting to go on in a green lycra frog costume because we all had to play farm. I played like three different farm animals in the show. And I remember sitting in this lycra green outfit and just looking down at myself and being like, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> and I was like doing it for free. And I was living in this share house for the summer with, you know, 10 other people. It was just the worst experience, which is, yes, which is a shame. You were an artist. You had integrity. <laughs> No, and I just thought pursuing your art. (laughs) I just thought, what am I doing? You know, I was like getting in my heading to my late twenties. You know, at that point, which now sounds so young, but at the time didn't. And I just thought, you know, f this, basically. (laughs) 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 And uh, and at the same time, I went uh, right after I finished the musical. I went um, to the Amalfi Coast with my best friend Whitney, who you'll know through our podcast that we later later on would do. And she, as well, was sort of living this parallel life in Los Angeles. And she was a an actor who needed a day job, who ended up as a sommelier. And we met uh, a day a day job. Well, yeah, I guess that was a night job. Yeah, no, I needed a night job. A source of income. Exactly, a source of income. We ended up uh, going to a wedding together in the Amalfi Coast and then taking scooters out to Campania and going to Avellino and um, and just tasting a bunch of wines. And I had, you know, already obviously been working at Vinopolis for a while. And she was like, just do it. Just make the leap. You know, she really was the one that, really encouraged me to, to just go full time into the wine thing. And, you know, I just thought, well, what's the worst, you know, what's the worst that can happen? What do I have to lose? Really? Um, I'll just go back to acting. If it doesn't work out, it'll always be there. And so literally I got back from the Italy trip and just, just, I unsubscribed to all of these audition, uh, websites and newsletters and things, and just sort of gradually cut it out of my life. And, asked Vinopolis to take on more shifts and did the WSCTs and then got a call from this um, television company wanting to, television program, sorry, wanting to, um, want looking for an American to come talk about wine on the, on this cooking show. And Why that, American? Uh, they were doing a, it was this, um, what, what were they calling it? Like a, it was like a footy tournament kind of thing for wine. So they had each country represented and we had to sort of bring a wine and have the guests, the audience, I should say, um, blind taste the wine. And we had to do a debate about why our country was great. So they wanted an American to come represent American wines. And I, I think I went against, 
They did have Australian. And I ended up going back and they did a beer tournament and I represented American and I won the whole tournament. And in the finals, I went against an Aussie actually. And I ripped him to shreds. I feel really bad now that I'm living in Australia saying this. What I would give to see that. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say that you can see it because they've put me in a cheerleader's costume. It's just hideously embarrassing. But, uh, and he's in like. Uh, And and that's supposed to put me off wanting to see it? (laughs) Oh, God, it's not an attractive cheerleader's costume. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I ended up, I ended up, because we had to do these, like, verbal debates, you know, and I ended up, uh, like, just slagging off Aussies in London and their reputation of, like, drinking too much beer and puking on the tube. <laughs> no, that's okay. We do it to ourselves. So <laughs> it's not, it's not nothing we haven't had already. <laughs> yeah. So, but I was very proud though. I, I won that one. I didn't win the wine one. I got beat by Chile, I think. Chile or New Zealand, one of the two. So presumably, you know, this is obviously, well, I guess in London, you know, it's probably one of the most, if not the most diverse wine market in the world, mm. you know, particularly the British show. I think I've, I've mentioned on previous episodes, they were the original wine customers for particularly for Europe um and and so they've got access to wines from all over the world so I guess it is really like a world cup of wine yeah it is for sure and in fact that's what you said Australia that's much better in this world cup than they do in the uh the football the soccer world cup I know god poor poor England Uh, yeah, so that was that was uh, that was fun. Actually, that's what it was called—the Wine World Cup. You've just reminded me. Well, I, could, I couldn't think of the name. God, uh, that was, yeah, that was a while ago now. <laughs> and and early on, did you have a particular affinity with wines from a certain place, or were you just kind of open to wines of of all styles? I was totally open, totally open to wines of all styles in the beginning. I didn't, you know, I didn't even drink red wines. I mean, I'd grown up with my mother, so I drank Oki Chardonnays and whatever the cheapest white wine I could find was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it took, you know, just to even start drinking reds was like a big leap for me, but that's what was so great about Vinopolis was they just threw you in the deep end and you had these wines at your disposal. And because it was an educational place, there was maps everywhere. So I, a lot of it was just just, you know, self-taught in the beginning before I actually did the WSETs because I'd go, okay, this is a Chateau Neuf de Pape. I have absolutely no idea what this is. I have no idea what the grapes are. I have no idea where it is, but I'd have this map behind me and I'd look, you know, so I'd look for where it was uh, in France and I'd look up what the grapes were. Um, so in the beginning, it was just like trying everything and mm. it wasn't really and for several years um, that I kind of found my own palate, I think, and figured out Okay. And, and obviously like that's still changing, but I kind of figured out, okay, this is definitely the styles of wines that I enjoy drinking at home, but it took a while to get to that point. Did you have an epiphany moment? Was there a, a, a wine or, you know, a, a dining experience or somewhere or someone you were with that kind of crystallized wine for you? There was an evening that really changed the way, yeah, that changed the way I thought about wine and and changed wine for me. And that was at a restaurant, a wine bar and restaurant called Terroir uh, in London. And this was, I went with a friend of mine, an Italian friend of mine. We were working at Vinopolis together um, to meet his friend uh, who was staying with me um, called Luca Rowania. Um, I know the name. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you'll have to try to get Luke on. He's like completely useless, as most natural winemakers are completely useless with all technology. <laughs> but you'll have to try to pin him down at one point because he's such a character. Um, <laughs> he's like about five foot tall and can drink me under the table, can drink anyone under the table. <laughs> um, and that's a and, big call. Yeah, right. No, he is. He's impressive, highly impressive. Um, so he, anyway, he was, um, he and my Italian friend were all, were meeting up at terroir with these importers that he was hoping would, would start bringing in his wines. And so I remember I was feeling really ill and I really just wanted to go home, but I thought, oh, okay, fine. Luca's staying at my house. You know, I should like, you know, I should go back with him. So he knows how to get back to the house and everything. So I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming after working at Vinopolis to terroir. I don't even think I got there till like 1030 at night. And, um, we ended up drinking there with the guys from Le Cave de Perenne, who are a, the biggest natural wine importers in the UK. They have a huge list of, um, it, it reads like a who's who of all the big natural wine guys. Well, basically. they're basically the, the UK equivalent of Louis Dressner. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I didn't even know who the heck they were. I didn't know what natural wine was. I didn't know anything about this whole other side to wine. And, and up until that point, I think it was really just a job for me. I mean, I, I liked it definitely. Um, and obviously I was pursuing it, but it was really still a job. And so then I ended up meeting Eric Nariu, who is the, who runs Le Cave and who started it. And, um, uh, two guys called DDA and Carlo who, who still work for Le Cave. And Eric was just having one of his nights where he was, terroir ended up closed. It had closed like an hour before or something. And he was just going down to the cellar and bringing out these amazing magnums of wine. And, and natural I don't even, wine locking. I love it. It exactly, and that's what he does. That's because he's so he's a part owner of Terroir, so he's he's allowed to do that. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> that's how sense. he can do that. Sure. And uh, and since then, actually, I've had a couple of nights like that where we go, oh, Eric's in one of his moods, and he shuts the door, and and these amazing wines come out of nowhere. Um, and I couldn't even tell you one wine that I drank that night. <laughs> I have no idea. All I know is it was from Magnums. It was a lot of it. We ended up there for quite a long time. Uh, and I just, I didn't, again, didn't know anything about the philosophies behind natural wine, but knew that these wines were unlike anything I'd ever tried before. They and were, yeah, like they were just exciting and they were just felt so full of life. And most importantly, I just wanted to drink them. I mm. mean, I just drank and drank and drank. Um, and that was so, that was so exciting. Cause suddenly I felt like I could connect, I guess, to a side of the wine world that I didn't know existed up until that point. And then I just became more and more connected, I think, to that side of it. And I found that I really liked that the philosophies, they, they really were in line with, um, you know, I was, I was very, um, supportive of like organic, um, agriculture and tried to eat as naturally as possible. And had always been really passionate about that. And so it was to be able to connect it to wine and, and also the people on that side of the industry were just like cool. They were just Mm -hmm. so cool. You know, they were like the rock stars of wine and I, who doesn't want to hang out with the rock stars of wine, you know? So I kind of think of them more like, uh, I don't know, Jazz artist somehow. Yeah. Rock, could, yeah. I, I guess. You know, this is cool factor to them. Anyway, 
Well, you're right. It's you a should, combo. You'll have to listen back to Dave, Dave's episode where he talked a lot about music and, and oh, does and, he? And relate to yeah, of course, because he's 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 got a super interesting background with yeah. music, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess did that sort of set you on a path of discovery with those kind of wines? How did you kind of try and incorporate that into what you were doing with wine in terms of a job? I guess. Uh, it was kind of hard at first and I still struggle with it. And I think if you talk to some of the most passionate, most outspoken people on that side of the wine world, they'll tell you how hard it is to make a career just out of talking about that. Like Alice Firing tells Mike me. Mike Betty. Yeah. Like, I mean, Mike actually, I think is, is really smart. He walks a very, very fine line in a sense where he clearly is very supportive of these kinds of wines, but he knows he's got to make a living at the end of the day too. And I think he does that incredibly well, but somebody like Alice Firing will say, you know, she can barely pay her rent at the end of the month, you know, and she struggles because she's been so, um, boxed into or boxed herself into, um, you know, these, whoops, these, um, you know, being supportive of these kinds of wines that she doesn't get asked to write about anything else or to talk about anything else. And of course, it's a really niche industry. It's a really small part of an already niche niche industry. So the benefit quite- Alice has, with particularly with the newsletter, is that it's for a global audience. You know, it's digital, yeah. so anyone around the world who has interest in natural wine, be it a producer or you know a merchant or just a consumer you know, can, can actually get access to this, you know, and particularly with, it's written in English. So mm-hmm. that opens up a lot more doors as well. That's true. Although I, I don't think Alice is, uh, is turning over much profit from it, unfortunately. I mean, I think she does okay, but yeah. I don't think she's like, I think she's probably barely, barely making ends meet, meet off it. But I mean, good on her for, you know, for being, she's been such an incredible voice. Um, and she's, God knows she's come up against so much resistance. Um, she must've developed a pretty thick skin by now yeah, I'm sure. with, uh, with some of the comments I've heard about her and leveled at her, it, it can get very petty. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, good honor for it. But I guess for me personally, I'm always trying to ride that line, you know, like Mike is, um, to a much smaller extent, but, um, but yeah, trying to find that balance of, you know, being passionate and wanting to always write about and talk about these kinds of wines and these people making the wines. Cause honestly, I wouldn't be in this industry if it weren't for that side of it. I, w- I probably wouldn't have stuck with it. Um, there's a, a side to the industry that is really boring to me and also really depressing to me. Um, I, I'm just not, I think I, I'm not a fan of ever working with a lot of intervention um, and certainly not of checking heaps of chemicals into the soil. So uh, it's hard for me to, to ever, you know, ever sort of, you know, pin my flag to that and to, and to openly promote that. But at the same time, that's not to say there aren't heaps of wines that I like that, you know, are, conventionally i hate that word but conventionally made yeah me too well that's the thing like i'm not necessarily kind of 100 percent all for organic biodynamic natural that kind of thing my my, the the ones certainly that i respond to more the ones that i want to work with are very much in the traditional kind of Mm -hmm. realm um you know i don't like you say intervention is is for me is a bad thing Mm. um maybe like absolutely monitoring like making sure you're protecting the wine that kind of thing so it doesn't spoil obviously that's important but when when a winemaker is actually um, imparting too much of themselves on what nature is essentially producing i think that's that's getting in the way 
particularly for my enjoyment of the product. I want it, I want it to taste of where it's from and what it's made from, not who made it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where, and most people I talk to that are very supportive of the natural movement, again, another word I hate, but the, the natural The revolution. Scene, revolution, I like that word better. Um, most people I, that I speak to anyway aren't as um, clear cut about it as uh, as some of the critics would, <laughs> critics of this yeah, revolution I would. I really disagree um, with the way that people who are proponents of, of that kind of um, wine a painted this is really broad brushstrokes yeah they you know they're basically painted like um you know greens voting um beard wearing you know yeah. love wines because they're faulty kind of thing it's like what a right. load of rubbish you know at the end of the day they want to drink wines that are delicious and they can enjoy and particularly enjoy with food the, the yeah, fact, and the who fact says that, they're delicious anyway? You know, who's like, who is the is somebody like a keeper of taste that says that this is this has to be the norm of what's delicious and what isn't? You know, surely I, taste I, is I, a lot more subjective than I that. I thought that isn't that Robert Parker? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> He's the arbiter, isn't he? That's right. He is. Oh God, thank God that's changing. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> so what was your the, like? You got introduced to this kind of the media. Um, elements of of wine. How did you then kind of follow that rabbit hole to huh. to sort of do more media stuff, appearing regularly on television, and then to lead you to um, starting the uh, the podcast with Whitney? Uh, I well, the the television thing was the real leap for me in uh, in in London, and you know it's, it's incredible the power of TV. Um, even even being on a geeky food show that like only only real hardcore foodies would watch and even only being on it occasionally you know only doing like one an appearance one every couple months just was incredible that influence so i was really really fortunate there how long and ago was was it you were on oh this was a while this was um probably 5 or 6 years ago now if it's you, not like you, can, you can imagine i guess um you know with the influence of masterchef in the UK and then, and, you know, in Australia. Oh, yeah. And then like the celebrity of chefs has just completely gone um, exponentially. Yeah. And so, you know, they like, you don't have just a food channel. You'd have a food network. There'd be maybe 15 channels on cable, cable networks, at least over in the UK, over in the U S I think in Australia on Fox there might be maybe half a dozen, but there's the, like, it seems like, um, people's for lack of a better word thirst for um that kind of um entertainment i guess um it just doesn't seem to be um stopping yeah yeah for sure and, and it's incredible you can understand why people pay thousands and thousands of dollars for you know an advert in in the middle of one of these shows i mean it's just an incredible incredible influence it's a bit sad in a sense but i guess tv can just reach people so you know so quickly and well i um, think i think watching a show about cooking is a lot better than watching the only way is essex <laughs> that's true that's very true um yeah, so I was just really lucky with that, that I, I kept getting asked back on that show and did it for um, probably about two and a half years on and off. Mm -hmm. And then I got, um, ended up getting canceled, sadly. Um, and then, so that sort of, that opened some doors in the way of presenting. And I was really wanted, because of my acting background, I really wanted to just stick with the presenting side of things. Um, 
So I was just doing a lot of like live presenting at various uh, food shows, food festivals. Um, I was getting hired to like I did a video for um, the IVDP, which is the Portuguese uh, Wine Association for Port and for Douro wines and, you know, things like that. So I would just do like little videos here and there and food festivals and stuff like that. And then the writing side of things hadn't really crossed my mind at all until I was, I had a meeting with, um, the, at the time, the publisher, I'm oh, sorry, the editor of, uh, decanter magazine. Mm-hmm. He's not there any longer, but, um, had a meeting with him about doing some videos for their website. And then I just, it was just one of those random spur of the moment things. I said, Hey, um, do you need an article on whatever, whatever? <laughs> and just got lucky. And he said, yeah, all right, you can write it. Wow. Not realizing in retrospect, yeah, and decanter's so hard to get an article. Like it's so oh my God. it's so hard now to get an article with them. And on I the, just got on the really website, lucky. let alone in the actual print magazine. Yeah, it was just I was like right place at the right time and just happened to pitch the right thing to him. Yeah. And um and so so that again just really fortunate got this feature in decanter which then people just kind of take you seriously you know oh okay you've got a piece in decanter yeah you can write for this magazine you can write for that magazine and it's funny how life is cyclical because i wanted to be a writer before i wanted to be an actor i wanted to be a writer and i well, i guess it was, makes sense i mean your brother is a playwright yeah and we and my 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 mother's an english teacher and she taught both like creative writing but also um stage and sc- stage and screen class so they do kind of go hand in hand i think um yeah. they're yeah they're kind of one in the same in many ways well, writing and, is just another form of performance really absolutely so my mother was so happy when she heard that i was writing <laughs> she always she always wanted me to be a writer and she always thought that's what i would do and um so the writing thing really took off and and now that's probably you know 90 percent of how i make my living and and what i do now is the writing because moving to perth um the only da- you know downside it's it's great living here but there's not really a lot of opportunities on the presenting side of things anymore so i've had to give that up a little bit but um but what i've gained is some really great writing opportunities so um it's been a balance perth yeah from from london (laughs) yeah a bit random huh yeah how did that happen my husband's from here um i feel like all the expats in perth are here because they either married someone from perth or um or a job for a job Probably I, I ta- usually I a mining it, job. I take it this wasn't the person that you tore to shreds um, with the, on the beer, the World Cup of beer? <laughs> no. He was very disappointed in me when I did that, though. <laughs> wow, okay. No, um, no. And so, yeah, big, a big big move to Perth. Uh, how, how do you find life in Australia, particularly um, in Perth? Uh, it's great, actually. You know, I think, like, moving anywhere new uh, it takes a little while to settle in. Um, culturally, I haven't found the Australian culture to be that, you know, that different to the British culture, or the American culture. I think we're English speaking cultures. We're, we're very, we have a lot of similarities. Um, it's an interesting hybrid of the two, I think. It is. It absolutely is. In terms um, of modern Australia in particular, because, uh, you know, yeah. like speaking for myself, growing up in Australia, we're exposed to a lot of American culture. Uh, and so, and so I guess, yeah, that, that's kind of uh, modern Australia is, is sort of, it's the barometer shifting a bit closer to the North American influence. 
Yeah. Yeah, you do. I see it as a generational thing a lot here as well, that the younger, younger generation of Aussies is much more Americanized than mm. the older generation seems a little more closely tied to Britain, yeah. which would make sense, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was more, I think moving here, the wine culture was actually more of a shock than the actual just social culture. Um, it was, it was really, really different. And I didn't realize how, um, how so what an anglophone I was really <laughs> and I think it just you know I I lived my whole adult life in Britain even though I obviously don't sound English at all I lived my you know I lived all of my 20s there and I learned everything about wine in from a European perspective and I drank probably 75% of what I drank would be uh, would have been European mm-hmm. and um and coming to a new world country uh, from a wine perspective was really different. And I think especially a place like Western Australia, which is so isolated. And I think um, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on here, but I would say is several years behind the East Coast uh, in terms of the wine revolution that's happening in this country. I haven't actually, I haven't had the opportunity to visit Perth, but I can imagine that for one thing, they're probably not, um, as big wine drinkers as you would find in Melbourne, Sydney, for example. Um, and I could, I would imagine that the wine that you consume there, it's somewhat more parochial. They'd probably be drinking a lot more WA wines. Yeah. I don't know if I would say that they're not as big a wine drinkers. The wine is still, I think, a pretty big part of, of the culture here. And, and they're really like Western Australians are very proud and rightfully so very yeah, proud. Yeah, absolutely. Um, of their wine producing regions. And, but yes, I would say parochial. Absolutely. They're definitely would be drinking more from their home state. Uh, it's changing. I mean, Perth has just changed massively in mm. the last, I, I've only lived here for two years, so I can't really speak that much about what it looked like before, but I did, I was visiting from about 07, um, visiting here every couple of years. And even in that time, just saw it change so much. And, you know, they, they, um, with the small bar license that they let through, um, a couple of years ago, I think that was t- maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's made a huge difference, um, to the amount of really cool bars and little restaurants popping up all over the city. Well, that's the same, exactly the same thing that happened in Sydney several years ago. You know, that that's kind of why they had this really new kind of vibrant, um, wine scene in Sydney. Uh, right. Because of the small, you know, it's something that we, I guess, we sort of take for granted in Melbourne now because it's been around for a lot longer. Yeah. When did you? When did you have it in Melbourne? Oh, uh, at least at least ten years ago. Right. Okay. So that would be why it's Melbourne was so much more vibrant, I guess, than other cities for a while. Yeah, but but to be yeah. honest, Melbourne, as far as a wine market, is still on the more conservative side. Really? Yeah, a little bit more sort of traditionalist, um, mm-hmm. less of the kind of you know, it's, it is changing. In fact, we're kind of now amazingly reacting to what Sydney's been doing uh, of late. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are people and there are venues that are focusing a lot more on the kind of wines that you, and I guess I, um, respond to a lot more. Right. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I do love the wine scene in Sydney though. I mean, I've only been there a few times, but just been so excited by what's happening over there. And Perth is, is catching up really fast. I mean, it's never going to be a Sydney clearly, but, um, but it's no, it's really, it's really exciting over here. You do feel a little isolated. Um, you know, it, it is, it was a change from London where you could, you know, I was going 
going to France for, you know, a weekend or <laughs> a, two nights, you know, oh. and back again and, you know, going to Italy for a couple of nights and back again. Just rub so, it in a bit more. That's it. Yeah, that's hard. You're just basically <laughs> spending a lot more time on a plane and a lot more money to go anywhere. Um, yeah. So that, that that was definitely an adjustment. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're we're drinking great wine here now. I mean, there's been places like Lala Rook and Print Hall here that have just completely changed the way people are drinking here. But certainly, um, the movement or the the revolution <laughs> it's sort of in Australia did start in Sydney, and that's kind of why they started the Rootstock Festival, which. Um, I talked to with I talked about with Daniel, and uh, in fact, my last two guests uh, and and yourself, uh, I met all three of you at the Rootstock Festival back in February of this year, and that was when we actually met in person. Yes, in person, and you know, I found out later I was two weeks pregnant when I was there, guzzling down wine. <laughs> that is going to. I'm sure that, that that's probably why the baby is so healthy. <laughs> Yeah, right. It was very natural. <laughs> yeah, well, she'll have good taste in wine at least. But yeah, I did. I kind of did the maths back and went, oh, right. Okay. I was, I was pregnant when I was drinking like a fish at Rootstock. Yeah, I remember oh, wow. bumping into you at uh, Frankie's Pizza on the Sunday evening. Oh, man. That was, yeah. With Evo? That was, that was like two in the morning or something. I don't remember. So <laughs> if we don't remember, it didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. Um. Now, I actually first um, was introduced to you um, via the podcast, uh, The Crush. Um, and if, you know, um, people might wonder how I came across the podcast um, was because, you know, whilst I was traveling, I started listening to some podcasts from home and, 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 you know, they were generally like comedy based, I guess, but I kind of got interested in finding one uh, related podcasts and and there were two in particular that um really caught my attention um there was uh the one that is done by levy dalton um i'll drink to i'll drink to that um and and yours you did with whitney and it wasn't until much later that i actually realized that i had already met whitney oh where did you meet her um i met her in friuli um she was part of a group of bloggers from the us and there was one guy from the uk um and it was the i guess it was arranged by the by the region um uh, to bring out people to kind of introduce them to friuli and the kind of wines that uh, you know are there and um went to a lunch at uh, bastianich Mm -hmm. where Lydia Bastianich, who I was blissfully unaware who she was because, you know, I'm naive and Australian. Um, and, and yeah, so there was a group. So there was um, Hawk Waka Waka mm -hmm. and um, oh, I can't remember who the other person was. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's where I met. Oh, was Jeremy me. Parsons on Yes, that? of course. Well, he, yeah. he, he was the one who, who, who organized. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and Talia, that's right. Talia, that's yeah. right, Talia Bioki, yeah. Yeah, and um, and so when I met Wayne, who uh, I think worked for the Bastianich family back in New York, and and he went over to Italy to sort of help them with the wine businesses, when I met him at Vinitaly, and I, and I asked, you know, I'd like to visit, and I said, oh, you know, I'm writing a blog, you know, very, very small time, um, about my travels, he said, oh, you're a blogger. Oh, well, actually, we're having a group of bloggers. Why don't you come up and join us? And so, and, and that was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, I um, bet. You know, for people who don't know who Lydia Bastianich was, she 
pretty much changed the way Americans think about Italian food, particularly regional Italian food. And, and you know, she's had a number of successful restaurants um, in New York City. And uh, in fact, her son, Joe, was a consultant on the the US MasterChef. And I think he was then a judge in the Italian MasterChef. So oh, really? really important, particularly in terms of food. Um, for for the for the US and yeah. Uh, yeah so and and so I started listening to to your podcast and honestly like it was just so entertaining the, you know but I always found I always wondered you know like logistically it must have been complicated because initially you were based in London and um, Whitney was based in LA um, and then you moved to Perth and so you were doing it remotely how did you find it um, running the podcast that way. Yeah, it was difficult. It was, um, in terms of the time difference, it was actually easier when I was in Perth because it was a, God, it was huge. It's, it's a 16 hour time difference, which was actually, believe it or not, easier than the eight hour. I don't know why. I mean, you should, you'd think it was just double. It should be, it should be no, the same for some reason. You are up at similar times, whereas the, the sort of eight or 10 hour difference between Australia and, and Europe is much yeah. harder. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just a tricky, there's something about eight hours that's tricky. Um, and so, so that was, that was a bit easier when we moved to Perth, but nothing else was easier. We, uh, we really struggled with the connection with Skype and the internet being, we were talking earlier, being a little bit slower here. And I don't know if it was a distance thing too, or what, or the speed of the internet, but we, um, we really struggled with getting the connection clear <laughs> once I was here. But, um, I mean, otherwise, I, th I really enjoyed enjoyed the fact that we were coming from really different perspectives and she would be really familiar with certain wines in LA. I would be familiar with the ones here, um, more so in London because we, we did a lot long, longer when I was based there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was lots of fun. There, we, we made it really hard on ourselves with a lot of prep work. Um, but, uh, yeah, but yeah well, it was you, you were doing different segments. Like I think one that really caught my eye was where in the world has Carmen Grapiego because, <laughs> yeah. uh, like that was my first geography lesson was playing the video game where in the world has Carmen Sandiego. Ah, did you? Yeah, yeah, we had it in Australia too. Oh, I didn't know you had it in Australia. Yeah, we cool. loved it. That's the oh, only yeah. way that I know that the capital of Iceland is Reykjavik. <laughs> it's the only way that I know that spelunking is caving. Oh, that, no, I learned that from Twin Peaks. <laughs> Yeah, you would learn all these random things, but yeah, for sure, geography, geography lesson, absolutely. I, where in the world I, I love, is Carmen San Diego? But particularly, I love I love playing where in the world is Carmen Grapiego myself because you know I had the good fortune of visiting a lot of the the regions that you were talking about, and so I tried to guess it as quickly as I could. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So we would just for those of you who haven't have not listened to the crush. Wine Talk Unfiltered, and if not, why not? Why have you not listened? I highly um, recommend it. Just kidding. It was, we would give three clues um, throughout the show, and it, so it would be Carmen Grapiego would be in a different wine region. Every time we'd give three clues, and then we'd reveal the region, and we'd recommend some wines from there. So it was heaps of fun. It was just so much prep work because, of course, you wouldn't want to – stuff it up and give, and, and I'm sure I had heaps of wrong information <laughs> throughout the years, but, uh, but we would obviously have to prep, you know, for that, write the clues. Um, and actually I did all, I did all the Carmen Grapiego thing. I think I got the short end of the stick there because Whitney was always like, Oh, you're so much better at the research stuff. You do the 
Carmen Grapiego stuff. And I was like, what? That's the really time consuming one. But yeah, we'd have to have to do a lot of prep. But it was such a good learning experience for us too, you know, because it would like force me to spend a week or, or however long it took, you know, just focused on Burgundy or wherever we were that mm. week. Mm. But um, I like that, you know, that what I, Levy's podcast is fantastic. It's very informative. But as, as he says in the introduction, you know, it's a podcast for the wine professional, um, particularly, you know, in terms of sommeliers and, 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 and that kind of thing. Um, and so he interviews people and it's very deep uh, and, um, and, and, and possibly for um, the average punter, as we say, um, it's probably going to be a little bit too dense. Whereas yeah. uh, I found um, the crush to be much more accessible and, Certainly, it was a big influence in terms of me wanting to start a podcast. So I have to thank you guys oh, for that. Well, thank you. I'm very touched, very honored to hear that. We genuinely, we are surprised anybody beyond our parents listened to it. And I don't even think my mother's listened to every episode. So when I hear stuff like that, it's very, very nice. Very nice to hear. So I was actually listening back to a few episodes. And I have yeah. to um, point out one thing. Oh, no. So you actually have an episode named... Uh, Goon of Fortune. Oh, no. Yeah. We don't, well, at least not that I'm aware of. I, I think Goon of Fortune might be the WA name for it. Yeah. Because, well, that's what my husband said. Well, because I always knew of it as Goonbag Roulette. What? Yeah. Goonbag Roulette. Well, that, that, because that kind of makes more sense because, because um, for those who aren't aware of this fantastic game we have in Australia, <laughs> we have a particular um, clothesline that was um, actually invented in Australia and was perfect for, for the backyard called a Hills Hoist. And basically it was a pole and four um, poles on, on, a, um, on the top of it would and you would have um sort of wire uh, or string or whatever between the four poles uh, in a cross on top of it and it could actually yeah. swing around so whoever was hanging out at the washing could stay in the same spot and just swing it around and what you would what and goonbag roulette as we call it um you take the what what are we lovingly called the the actual bladder inside um boxed or cask wine um, and tie that to attach that to one of the four posts and then spin the hills hoist and people would be standing around the outside and when it actually comes off if it falls at your feet then you have to drink straight from the bladder only aussies would think of a game like this well it's interesting because <laughs> because um and i only heard about this you know much later on when i was already an adult but there's actually uh, you know there are several non-alcoholic versions of the game including uh, i think it was beetroot of uh, uh, beetroot roulette oh come on why yeah. would you bother if there's no booze in there very true very true <laughs> but um if i think probably one of the most informative um episodes of the crush is uh, i think it's called the wine beers um where you guys interviewed a number of different people who all work in different elements um now you know on on the vincast i do try and interview or sit down with people who uh represent all the different elements of the wine industry but what was great about this one episode is you can talk you, you get to hear from um mike benny in fact he was the kind mm -hmm. of the the wine communicator wine you had yeah. a, a sommelier uh a wine rep um and mm -hmm. and you also had a winemaker um mm -hmm. who is not far from you where you are now yeah we had ben gould on there yep from blind corner hmm 
But um, and and Whitney's still based in LA. I think she's yeah. um, she's got her own little project yeah. she's working on. Yeah, Whitney is. Um, she's. I don't think she's sommeliering these days anymore. Um, she was managing a great wine shop called Domain LA over there, but she's got her own uh, wine accessories business. Um, sorry, there goes my. <laughs> I really need to get a new wine fridge. Uh, there's some nice bottles in there, but it's a very loud fridge. <laughs> um, yeah, she's got a um, she's got a, a a wine accessories business, and she's designing her own um, like corkscrews and uh, bottle covers and things, and they're beautiful. So she's uh, Whitney A. Whitney A. dot com, I think it is. Um, should check it out. Check out her accessories. She ships anywhere in the world, I believe. Mm. So you could get it over here. But yeah, she's doing that. She's doing um, doing really well. And and actually, going back to the wine biz podcast, the reason we decided to do that episode was because we had uh, a lot of people writing in because we did always aim that want want to aim that podcast for towards you know more just enthusiasts and people. Um, it started out actually on a site called homefries.com and it, there was a bunch of other podcasts like food related and social socializing. I think there was like a, a party one, like party planning one or something. And there was okay. a, a food one. Um, I'm sure they must've had an episode called um, Guna Fortune as well then. <laughs> I think they were way classier than we were. I think <laughs> hey, like our, our podcast was by far the most ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the whole idea was that we knew that our listenership was going to come from people who weren't necessarily you know, maybe not seeking out wine initially, but just kind of go, you know, we're foodies or we're into, you know, into just sort of the, the whole, yeah, I guess the food and drink scene in general. And so we always kind of, it it evolved probably got a little bit more wine geeky as we went on, but we, we would have people writing in saying, you know, I'd love to work in the wine industry, but I don't really know where to start. And I don't know if my, like, I don't want to be a winemaker, but I don't know if my skills are, you know, applicable. And so that's kind of where it started. And since then we've had several people who now have told us that they work full time in the wine industry. And that part of it in the beginning was from listening to our show and getting ideas. And so we were like, just extremely honored, just so blown away to hear that, that they hadn't thought, you know, oh, well, there's, you know, all these sides of the industry that we can work on. You know, you don't have to just make wine. Um, there's, there's a, you can, you know, pretty much any, and, and I think that's one of the things I love about the wine industry is that you get, you know, you can be left-brained, right-brained, you can be a scientist, a writer, a, you know, philosopher, an environmentalist. And there's just so many, so many different sides to it that all can apply to this one delicious drink. I, I, what I like about, you know, the podcast, and I guess you probably sum up your um, career with wine is it's very much edutainment. So, so it's about teaching, but kind of making it accessible and fun, putting a, a really um, accessible face on things. And, and, and particularly with the project you started a little while ago over in Perth, you're actually uh, teaching people, you're running some courses over there. Yeah. Well, when I got here, I, I, the writing thing, um, as I say, I was fortunate that I, um, I was getting a decent amount of writing work, but, uh, there's only so much sitting in front of the computer and, and, you know, in, in my dark hole of an office that I can take before I go completely mental. Um, and I was really missing the communicating side and, and actually getting, you know, to talk to live people. Interacting. Um, yeah. And, um, and I think what I'd loved in London and I missed was by the time I left London anyway, I had found a really nice balance of the two. So I was sort of 50, 50 writing and communicating. Yeah. And, um, so I started off here trying to, um, 
trying to see if I could sort of team up with restaurants and do some tastings there. There wasn't really much out there. And I realized this is a city for entrepreneurs. Like you you just have to make your own work really, if you want it, you know, it wasn't going to come to me basically. Um, so it sounds like a TV show Deadwood. (laughs) What? I've never seen that show. Oh, it's, it's set in the gold rush. Never mind. Oh, (laughs) um, yeah. So, and, and I looked at, I was looking at what other wine education was available in WA and there is, um, full bottle. It's called the company that works with wines of WA in the wine education center. They do a fantastic job, but they're very, um, very much for like serious wine people, you know, it's, it's WSET courses and things and they're great. And, and Ed, uh, who runs it is, is fantastic, but there wasn't really a lot out there that was a little more just lightheaded and fun. And you could just go to a bar and like take the wine class and then stay on and have some drinks. And, um, yeah. So I started the school of wine, uh, and I had in my head the whole time in my head, I don't think anyone else gets this reference, but me, but I was thinking of school of rock, you know, no, that's loved- exactly what I think of. Oh, good. Jack I was Black. thinking of Jack Black. And in the beginning I was like, Oh, I want to brand it with, you know, a skull and make it really like rock and roll. And then I just thought, Oh, getting, getting a bit carried away there. It's but- possibly not the best reference. though, considering he's teaching children <laughs> rock <laughs> music. True. So you don't necessarily want to be saying, Hey, I'm teaching your kids about what Wine. Wine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> but it's a good reference. It's a good movie. It is. It is. So yeah. So so um, I, I've uh, I've backed off the classes now that I've had the baby because I've had to had to take a little bit of a break. But um, starting them again in the new year, and they're just um, like just two hour one off. Uh, I had very lofty ideas about doing like multiple you know multiple class courses, mm. uh, actual courses, but it was. Just, just buy off a bit more than I can choose. So I'm just doing themed themed classes at the moment, and we do them at um, bars and restaurants around Perth. So it's been but really great it's for me. It, it's it's again, it's more accessible because people can kind of drop in and out. Like they might see a topic that they're interested in, but they're not necessarily making the commitment of, oh, "Hey, this is a six week course. You have to come every week." You right. know, people can kind of go. They don't feel so bad about, "Oh, I'm gonna, I can't make it to that one." Yeah. And it's nice actually, because I've had some people who've gone to my class and then have gone on to full bottle to do the WSET courses or one of the more. Yeah. And it's good. And they've kind of sent me, we have a really good relationship because when I first started, I thought Ed was going to hate me. Like I remember at a tasting, he came up to me and started chatting and I was just, I think my, my like chin just dropped and he he was like, what? And I I thought, I I said to him, I thought you would hate me because I'm now the competition. And he said, don't be silly. You know, Perth is small and we definitely can use more, you know, more in the way of wine education. And so he's been absolutely lovely about it. And we end up just sort of sending each other work and, and it's because I'm kind of different enough to what he's doing it. We, we end up working, working well, uh, alongside each other. So, you know, it, if you're getting more people into drinking wine and loving wine, like that's really satisfying and, and good wine and interesting wine too. Like that's what I really promote in the class is that, you know, you're not going to come and drink your, you know, some big commercial wine that you can find in every bottle shop, um, in the city, you're going to come and drink some interesting wines that maybe you've seen on the shelf, but you were too scared to try, or maybe, you know, you've never heard of before. That's the idea. Like that's, that's, it's a bit boring to go and just drink stuff that you'd always drink. So awesome. Well, for my Perth listeners, I highly recommend getting in touch with Christina and, uh, and, and finding out in the new year when, when she's going to be running some classes and jumping on board. But um, look, thank you very much for joining me today, Christina. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, James. Um, What's the best way people can uh, follow you and, and get in touch? 
So my website's winewithchristina.com, uh, not .com.au, just .com. And uh, Twitter is winewchristina or Facebook as well, Wine with Christina. Awesome. Well, um, good luck uh, having a nice cold Christmas in New York while we're on the beach. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I cannot wait to uh, see you hopefully next year. Yeah, I hope so. Come to Perth sometime. Uh, you, you better believe it. <laughs> Thanks, James. Bye. And as always, thank you guys for listening to the Vincast. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Um, please let both Christina and myself know if you did. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at IntrepidWino, but also the podcast is on Twitter at the Vincast. Uh, you'll find me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash IntrepidWino, but uh, you can find me on my website, IntrepidWino.com, which has all the previous episodes of the podcast, as well as some of my musings in written form. Um, I really would appreciate you guys subscribing to the podcast on either iTunes or Stitcher or even both. Um, and whilst you're there, please do leave me a rating and a review and let me know what you think of the podcast and what you think of um, particular episodes. Uh, if you listen to this episode when it goes up, guys, I do hope you have a really lovely Christmas. Uh, tell me about some of the Christmas booze you are drinking and how it goes with whatever meal you happen to be enjoying. But until next time, bye. Bye.